Hello, I'm Stephen James, and welcome to the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Hello, and welcome to the Story Blender. Today's guest, Steve Hunter, is a versatile and talented author of both fiction and nonfiction. He has written over 20 novels and also served as the chief film critic for the Washington Post, where he won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. Along with his novels, he has published two collections of film criticism and a nonfiction work, American Gunfight. His latest thriller, Game of Snipers, just released this summer. I first became aware of uh, Steve's work when I read his book, The 47th Samurai, a couple of years ago. I was immediately impressed with his uh, storytelling and his writing, and I've been hoping for a long time to have him as a guest here on the Story Blender. So, Steve, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Steve, I appreciate the opportunity to toot my little horn. <laughs> now, recently, we, uh, we were at the um, International Thriller Writers Conference Thriller Fest, and you were given a Lifetime Achievement Award in the arena of thriller writing, the Thriller Legend Award. So, congratulations. Thank you so much. I, that was a professional highlight by all means for me, and I'm very grateful for them to them for their recognition. Now, what first inspired you to become involved in writing thrillers? I, I have the it, impression that you could have gone kind of in any direction. Uh, yes and no. I, I, my, my issue has always been energy. Yeah. I am congenitally lazy. I'm one of those guys who would live on the sofa if it was at all possible. I'd weigh 600 <laughs> pounds, I'd have ponytails, and I'd only go out of the house to add a new tattoo. Uh, <laughs> so I need something that stirs me. And thrillers stir me. Uh, particular kinds of thrillers stir me very powerfully, and they get my imagination working. And the imagination for me has always proven to be the source of energy. And when I am, when my imagination is ticking and clicking and, and making weird noises and, and producing odd sparks of electricity, then I am at my best. And I try very hard. Well, let's just say that that kind of energy uh, lets me write the books. And then once the books are done, I... Uh, degenerate to the couch potato status again. <laughs> well, I feel like you've done a good job with that in your stories and the ones that I've read. And uh, I love the, um, I, I just love the, I, I love the way you put it, the energy. And um, I note that you you write great, you know, fight scenes and um, and also gunfights. Is are we ever trained in combat or battle, or does that just come from experience in, in writing? I am a professional eleven Bravo. That is to say, light weapons infantryman, courtesy of the United States Army. Never saw combat, but I fired all the guns and wow. did all the close combat courses and all that stuff. But it's more than that. Uh, I have a you know I, I spoke earlier about how you've got to utilize the imagination that you have instead of the imagination that you wish you have. Once I understood that I was, for whatever reason, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's a strain of autism, who knows, maybe there was something in my background that created it, maybe family circumstances, 
but I am very powerfully drawn to the firearm. And uh, if the firearm is really at the center of my imagination, and it's at the center of most of my uh, my books. Now, it's no surprise that my hero is a sniper, uh, Bob Lee Swagger, a former Marine sniper, who also has an extraordinary gift for the gun. The difference between him and I is that he is courageous and bold and a brilliant shot, and I am a craven coward and not a very good shot. But I, <laughs> that's Part of the fun is pretending to be him as opposed to being stuck with being me. I have... Uh, uh, and when I, and for that reason, the gun material is always, it's always the treat of the book. It's always the thing I'm looking forward to. It's always what gets me writing for the administrative parts of the book. It is, uh, it's, I believe, and I appreciate your validation of this concept, that it's my best thing. And I also believe in a mercenary way that it defines me in the marketplace. And so I've spent a lot of time studying, shooting, talking to people, researching, and trying to make myself uh, at least a member of that world and understand what can happen and what can't happen and try and give a sense of authenticity, maybe slightly exaggerated, but not ridiculous. You know, there's no somersaults. There's no shooting with two hands, there's no slow motion. Uh, my gunfights are fast, energetic, crazy. Odd things happen in the middle of them as frequently happens in gunfights. They're, they're terrifying, they're exhilarating, and uh, I, I try and make them, the main thing is to make them believable. And that's, that's, again, that's my product. It's really my only product, and that's what I'm selling, and that's why... Uh, I uh, I focus on that, and I realize I'm talking way too long. So I no, no, this is perfect. Yes. Okay. No, go right no, ahead. This is great. <laughs> um, so I've noticed in the course of my writing that if you get something wrong in a book, you might hear from, um, a, say, a reader. But if you get something wrong in a book regarding firearms, you will hear from a lot of readers. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. So, they're very persnickety people. The gun culture is full of pedants, and a lot of them, uh, they love. And I mean, they, all the things they talk about, and all, I, I mean, I'm not setting myself apart. It fascinates me, too, is how much stuff is continuously gotten wrong yeah. and is never corrected. And, and I cannot say to you I've never gotten anything wrong because I have gotten stuff wrong, but I've, I, knowing how sensitive they are, uh, I uh, I try and get that stuff right because I don't want those letters. And in fact, if I get um, if if I if I make a mistake and I hear about it in the paperback or in the subsequent uh, e packages sure. or the subsequent publishing, we'll try and get those corrected. So yeah. hopefully, by the end of the of the product, the uh, of the of the of the run of the book, the, the the product is close to perfect. Maybe not, but we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. That says a lot about you respect your readers um, and that, uh, you know, they can tell that, I think, and it comes through as a, as a matter of honoring them. You're trying to give them, you know, what, um, what they come to this book, this product for. And 
Well, um, one of the since you're interested in craft, I will say to you that one of the real uh, problems or dilemmas with this kind of book is trying to find the right story blend as it is between too much and not enough. Yeah. If I don't give them enough, they'll be disappointed. They'll feel like they've been sold down the river. If I give them too much, I will, you know, I will lose the less, the less uh, committed readers. Uh, for example, the new book, uh, Game of Snipers, it's about a, a assassin building a mile-long shot. It's been done. It is possible. It's feasible. But it can't be done instantly. It's gotta, yeah. You've got to work your way towards it. So we go through all the steps on the road to the mile-long shot. And, I, again, uh, every sentence I'm writing, I'm thinking, maybe this is the one that breaks the, commas, the camel's back, the one that's just too much. And in the end, I settled with a kind of an attenuated and generalized vision of it, uh, version of it. But I tried to get everything right so that people, if they couldn't, you know, so they would understand the art and the science and the intuition that goes into such a thing. And the whole point of it is to make it real so that the thread is real, so that the drama is real, so that the book is real. Absolutely. And um, I think that in all of the aspects of craft, uh, one, one of the um, most important is actually believability. When readers start reading something and they say, you know, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. That would never happen. That, I think, more than almost anything else, pushes us out of stories. You can have, an, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that's an excellent point. The way I think of it is the readers, I would only add this, the reader wants to believe. He's yeah. bought the book or he's acquired the book. He wants the trip and he wants to believe. And he's going to give you a certain amount of credit. By that, I don't mean credit in terms of praise, but I mean credit in terms of, uh, giving you a loan, and what he's loaning you is his uh, his incredulity, and he will let you get away with this, and he will let you get away with that, and he will get let you get away with this other thing, if the story keeps rolling and rolling. But there comes a point where you break the bank, and he says, "Ah, you know, I, I go with him on the headshot. I, I go with him on the." on the uh, armor vest stopping the bullet, but suddenly he's shooting down a helicopter with a pistol with one shot. Uh-uh, yeah. no way, out, and throws the book against the wall and speaks ill of you at uh, uh, the next seven parties he goes to. So you don't, you've got to be, that's a judgment, and that's that's kind of, you know, not to sound, you know, you get it obviously, from your own work, but that's the moment you're trying to avoid, and you've got, that's the calculus you have to make in order to let it happen or, you know, and just draw back from the absurd and, uh, or the incredibly coincidental. I have some shameful coincidences in my book. You know, there's one book that utterly falls apart if the snowstorm arrives two minutes earlier or two <laughs> minutes later. <laughs> and I keep waiting for someone to say, Steve, what about that damn snowstorm? But, uh, you know, I because it was late in the book and everybody who was still reading was by that time I'd gotten to them, they accepted the 11.54 and 14 seconds p.m. arrival of the snow. <laughs> 
I think that's an interesting point to bring up, and that is, at the mo- where does the um, moment come where um, maybe there is a moment of, oh, that's really coincidental. Does it come at the end? Does it come at the beginning? Does it come... You know, I think of um, some stories where suddenly something will happen, and it seems like a huge coincidence, but then because of the narrative force, because uh, we've spent 400 pages you know, with this author, and we're in this home sprint to the home run, they trust you at that point, and they're like, okay, I'll put up with that because, you know, he's proven himself at this point, as, you know, as a trustworthy author, and they just don't look at it so much. Um, but, I, uh, I but, think that's, yeah. an ex- that's an excellent point, and you want to get to that land of suspe- well, what they call it technically a suspended disbelief. They yeah. suspend their disbelief, and they buy it. And I will say that in everybody's life, there are coincidences. So it's not like, you know, if the coincidence is a lightning strike, okay, you're a little sketchy on that one. But if the coincidence is that a police car happens to be rolling by at just that time, then you're okay because police cars, that's what they do is they roll yeah. by. And it's its believable within the context. So you've got to... Uh, uh, you know, it's like the guy said about drugs in, God, in The Godfather. Coincidences are allowed, but they must be controlled. You know, it's just a very, it's a very, again, it's one of the things you do as a professional writer is you make those decisions and you, uh, you, and you, 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 you deploy your judgment into what you can and what you can't get away with. I sometimes, when I teach on writing, I sometimes teach people that um, foreshadowing is one way to eliminate coincidence. Excellent point. Yeah. You must know something about this stuff. I don't know. Why don't you get a a podcast or something? (laughs) We can get this out to lots of people. No, that is I'll have to look into that. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, good idea. Uh, You can... You can make coincidence seem less coincidental by building it into the system of the book and making people aware that 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 these things could happen at any time. Um, I, a book I wrote about a Russian sniper, a female sniper, a, a Soviet attack had to come at a certain precise moment to save someone else's life. And I... I I understood that if it came from nowhere, it would just seem like a bolt from God. But I built into into that part of the narrative the idea that everyone knew the Soviets were massing uh, for this attack in Ukraine in October of uh, 1944. Indeed, the Soviets did attack in uh, the Ukraine in uh, October of 1944. And so when it happened to come at precisely the right moment that it saved somebody's life, at that that was allowable as opposed to had it just suddenly, I suddenly decreed it as such, yeah. uh, it, it, it would not have worked. Yeah, I don't like the stories where, it, you know, it's the climax and suddenly, you know, there's this character surrounded by four uh, martial arts experts and and she suddenly crouches and says, good thing I studied karate back in high school and starts... Yeah. Like, what? Well, I agree. <laughs> Another from? mark of someone who doesn't quite get it is when, in order to end an already too complicated story, you've got to introduce four new major characters in the last 27 pages. Ah, uh, yeah. That's 
that's that's kind of not you got to work it a little bit more carefully than that now when we were at uh when we were at thriller fest i remember you were being interviewed by one of the um i think one of the board members from thriller fest and you'd mentioned that different you talked a bit about different types of movies i believe or story threads and you mentioned the collision course and the mosaic you may that have had others <laughs> yeah it was that was you. me yeah, yeah. But I remember he was interviewing you and asked this question, and, and you'd brought those two up, and those two really struck in my mind. And you may have had others, but I, I jotted those two down. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit of what um, what those sort of I don't know theories or or ways of looking at story were? Because I found them very informative. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for remembering. Uh, next time, just write down the name S T E P H E N H U N T. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah, the most primitive but also effective story form is the collision course. And it was understanding that that helped me write a publishable book after two unpublishable books. And that was indeed my book, The Master Sniper, which is pure collision course set in 1945. It was, that was the day when end of World War II thrillers were all the rage. And it's very simple. You identify two forces one a force that you believe in and a force that you want to see stymie good guys and bad guys in other words and the process of the book is watching them approach each other and the closer they get the more the uh uh suspense is ratcheted maybe they're approaching via coincidence maybe they're approaching via the mechanism of the manhunt Maybe they're approaching by the mechanism of a military or an espionage operation. But as we see them come closer and closer, that makes the suspense grow. And uh, when they actually conflict, that's an action sequence. And that gives you, uh, you, you, can, you know, that gives you one of those fun days where you write uh, machine guns and explosions and all sorts of uh, stuff like that. And, uh, uh, and it also, it's good. And it, you know, that's what the readers, they want that. But they want it in the dramatic context. They want drama. They don't want behavior. And after that one, you simply repeat that process twice more, but always on a bigger scale. Okay, so maybe it was in the first one they got to know each other. In the second one, they got to know even more about each other. And in the final one, they hate each other. And so the stakes are increased. In that book, the issue was when the mission, we weren't quite clear what the guy's mission was what the German sniper's mission was. And that's the, that was the enigma that the uh, Manhunters were trying to solve. It was a small OSS uh, MI5 team. And um, they finally solve it as per formula, just in the nick of time. I mean, there's no <laughs> book if they don't. You just, yeah. you know, that's just three. You don't read these kind of books if you don't like nicks of time. And uh, then we, and I try and deliver the best fight at the end is the climax. And I will say about the fights is, again, they have to be drama, not behavior. And the way you do that generally is, A, to make them believe in your characters, and B, to make sure that they act in the gunfight in, uh, within the framework of the characters that you have established. You can't yeah. have you know, a, a, a four-eyed goofball suddenly hitting a 1,500-yard shot. 
he's got a, he can only hit 150 yard shots. So the issue will be how does he, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that, that understanding that was very helpful to me. And even as I struggled with that book, I knew that if I stuck to the, to the outline or to the design, I'd be okay. The other kind of book is more sophisticated. Uh, it's more difficult to bring off. It demands, I think, a higher level of, of, of writing talent. I call it the mosaic. Uh, it's kind of like that old game concentration where you're, you're trying to match hidden pictures on, on a board. And what this is is you've got a series of clearly interconnected, but it's not clear how they're interconnected, scenes that are very vivid and compelling, and you are hunting for a pattern. And the author is paying out, uh, he's teasing you with the pattern's emergence all the way through. And the climax, and as you get deeper into the book, uh, and the, uh, some of the, and the, the, the scenes are, how can I say, closer together or fresher in your memory, you begin to see the connections, even as the characters are seeing the connections. And the climax of that book, I mean, there's always an action aspect of the book over it, but in this case, the, the real climax is intellectual. When you finally reveal the last part of the mosaic that makes sense of everything that comes before it and provides that uniform pattern, and you suddenly see why this happened and why that happened and who was pulling the strings on that one. And as I say, it's very difficult to bring off. Uh, you know, that's what Agatha Christie did. She was a master at that. She would give you a little piece here and a little piece there. And it, as vivid as the pieces were, it, that's not what you yearned for. What you yearned for was that moment of connection where it all came clear. And as I say, uh, as you advance in your storytelling abilities and as hopefully in your career, you'll learn ways in which you can combine the two basic forms and have them play off of each other in interesting ways. And uh, your books, therefore, get more sophisticated, more interesting, and uh, we hope and pray more successful. I, I will say, since you didn't jump right in, I guess I'll continue to talk. Yeah, I yeah. will say that this, my book, Game of Snipers, is actually very much like my first book, the Master Sniper. I didn't realize that until I was uh, most of the way through it, but in some way I recalled the, that, that simple form and I wanted to write a book that was kind of pure narrative, pure chase, didn't demand a lot of backstory, a lot of explanations, a lot of exposition. And uh, uh, I, in many respects, I reverted to the original format, and I actually repeated several of the story mechanisms, like a scene where helpless individuals are used as as, uh, as targets in the beginning of the book, uh, the scene where the manhunters are putting together uh, hints from from information they've gleaned by capturing firing ranges where the guy has practiced. And, uh, and, and, and and things like that. And and in the end, uh, they tumble to one explanation and they think that's right, 
but at the very last moment they realize there's another explanation which really is right and then they have to get there lickety split or they failed and uh you know that's that's very much like the master sniper yeah that sounds like like exactly what readers are looking for they want to predict where a story will go, it's one of these paradoxes, but they don't want to be right. They want to predict that's, and say, okay, I've got this figured out, but then, yeah, we had the That's twist. a very, very good point, by the way. Yes, it is. I always say they want, to, they, want, they want the genre to adhere to all the uh, attributes of the genre. They want to feel in familiar territory. They want the... They want all the story situations and probably even the characters to be familiar to them, not only from the author's previous books, but from other authors' previous books. I mean, the market proves that these, this is the area, these are the kinds of people, this is the milieu that, that people want to read about. But at the same time, as much as they yearn that, for that familiarity, they also want the unfamiliarity of a new solution to an old problem. Hmm, and that's like that. what we're trying to do is come up with those new solutions. Now, how uh, how do you approach that, um, Steve? Do you typically outline uh, a book beforehand, or do you more, write more organically, allowing the discovery of the story to unfold as you move along? I'll give you a bold and a fearless answer. The answer <laughs> is both. The answer is that I will not start without a solid outline. I have to know the structure I have to see the buttresses. I have to see the tent poles of the story. I have to have in mind a climax. I have to have in mind a variety of character conflicts. And then I just go and let interesting things happen. Sometimes I abandon and sometimes I don't abandon. Uh, I found, as I'm sure you have found, that the, the, the uh, friction created by the actual application of keys of fingers to keyboard sometimes creates in and of itself things that you didn't expect and then you've got to deal with that you've got to, how to figure out how to work that into the story uh it's going on right now with the book i'm working on now i created a minor character in the first chapter but i liked him so much i brought him back and i brought him back and i realized and it also happens in uh uh game of snipers i created a character that was really only going to be in one scene but i realized mrs mcdowell was gold and yeah. uh, so i infiltrated her into the novel uh, all the way through and in and until the very uh, you know and she's uh, figures significantly in the climax she's the one who sort of breaks the case and um so in other words you have to have structure but you also have to have room for uh, improvisation. And I will say books where you don't improvise are somehow dead. Um, they're too they're too programmatic. They're too unspontaneous. You need your brain needs and your readers need the crackle of spontaneity uh, in in the book to to really bring it alive. That or at least that's been my experience. Yeah. No, I actually completely agree. You know um, that responsiveness. Uh, that um, that you just referred to as you work on the story and, and identify aspects of it that really work or maybe that don't, and the ability to respond to that imagination as it's unfolding, I feel is is super important. Um, yeah, and now, a lot of let, times, let me just yeah. go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that, like you, like you had um, said a moment ago. Sometimes I'm reading a book and I can be like, "Oh, I know they outline this. I know exactly what's coming next because I know the yeah. structure yeah, that they're exactly, following." Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I had a, a discussion uh, with a well-known, extremely well-known thriller writer on a panel once, and he was completely of the opinion he stayed away from outlines. And um, he didn't care for outlines, and he just let it happen. Uh, and he and I had that dogmatic disagreement. Uh, I I don't want to be sitting there at 4 a.m. trying to figure out what happens next. I will point out that uh, Hemingway gave up on outlines, and Hemingway, when he started, he didn't even know if he was writing a book or a short story. He just start writing. And he would just see if it got interesting enough to merit working on a second, a third day, and then a second or a third month, and then a second or a third year. And um, the results, particularly towards the end of his career, I mean, the problem with all the books that were published after his death was that they went nowhere and they had no coherent internal structure. And it's a dumbass had sat down with a bottle of Muscatel and spent a half an hour on each book writing an outline, his story and his posthumous works might be completely differently viewed, but he just trusted in his own instincts and his own instincts let him down. So there you have it. You just, you've got to, you can't, you can't improvise your way into chaos. You know, improvise Again, improvisation is allowed, but it must be controlled. Now, see, it, it is real interesting because I'm more of the organic stripe. Like when I start, I've never known how one of my books will end when I've started them. And so I tend to be more that way, but, but I'm always curious to, to listen to different approaches. Like what you were saying, you know, you kind of do a little bit of both, where you start with... <laughs> you know, the outline, but then you allow yourself to move in new directions. Well, one of the things that happens if you have a career is that uh, you find out what you're good at and what yeah. you're not good at and where you're comfortable and where you're not comfortable. And I think almost instinctively you follow that path as you, as you go along and you will veer towards that which uh, you're comfortable with and you will avoid that which you're not. So it's almost like there's some internal servo mechanism that's, uh, that's guiding you. I'm a great believer in the uh, sub or the unconscious. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's, it, it works over time for most of us. It certainly does for me. How do you tap into that, the subconscious or the unconscious, when, when you're writing? Do you set your work aside for a while? Do you sleep on it? Do you brainstorm? No, I, just, I, I trust it. Yeah, uh, it's there, and uh, it'll—it's always been there. Uh, I hope it's there at least for another few years. Um, I don't, you know, someone as Raymond Chandler on the subconscious. He said, uh, "Your subconscious does all the work." He says, "The only problem is it doesn't keep regular hours." And that's exactly true, and it will interrupt at the weirdest times. I mean, I—I I, as a movie critic, I would be sitting there <clears throat> watching a movie and all of a sudden my subconscious would inform me that it had solved a certain problem in a certain book and it would totally take up 
and uh, evolve my, you know, and dominate my mind for five <laughs> minutes, and I'd be totally excited. And then I'd realize I had no idea what was going on in the movie. So I had to ask, so what, after he kissed her, what, what, what happened next? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, and I'm fascinated by your career as a film critic. Um, do you, are you able now to watch a movie without criticizing, or, or not criticizing so much, but looking at it through the lens uh, of a critic? Mm. <sighs> That's a really it's interesting hard, huh? question. One, one, one aspect of it is the fact that I don't, I don't see a lot of contemporary movies. I just am not interested in them. I don't like the computer graphics. One of the things that made me decide to leave the business was the fact that the movies had gotten, to my mind, so stale and uh, and uninteresting, and I just would go weeks and weeks without a movie I really cared about. Mm. Uh, and so I, that's when I realized it was time to, to, to go elsewhere. Um, now, so I'm watching movies, I'm cherry-picking movies. The only movies I see are movies that I want to see. Sure. And uh, I try and watch them as a person and not a critic. And yet, if they have provocative ideas, if there is something in them that is, that is salient or new or unusual, I will then, I, I will think about that and I'll feel myself stimulated in the critic part of my brain hmm. and I'll sometimes wish uh, that I had a uh, you know a podium from which I could dispense my insights into this or that or the other thing but it's not really a uh, you know it's not it's not a major theme of my life the movies anymore I'm, I'm happy to say it's like my movie hard drive filled up you know, it just <laughs> d does not compute anymore and I almost never see a movie on a big screen. I haven't been to a theater. Now, this is after going to movie theaters six times a week for 28 yeah. years. Suddenly, I haven't been in a movie theater. You know, I average about once every year and a half. There's something I really want to see. Like, I think I want to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the big screen. So I'll probably, I'll probably find an afternoon to go do that. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, I like how you mentioned that your like your hard drive is full. Uh, I find that when I, as a novelist, I find it difficult sometimes to find novels that I really love. I tend to be very critical of them, and as I'm reading them, I might say, "Oh, I can't get past his use of this or the unbelievability or whatever," and I end up uh, having a difficult time just sitting down and enjoying them. So I'm always thrilled when I find one that that I just get lost in. Do you have a do you have hardware in my brain that is uh taking thoughts from me and shooting <laughs> them out of your mouth? That is exactly what I feel. I almost read no fiction these days because I suppose partially because I know all the tricks and I suppose because uh well it's also a question of I, I believe that uh, willpower, you know, it takes a certain amount of will or concentration, if you will, to write a book. And I believe that concentration is depletionary. Hmm. And if you have to struggle to read a novel, you're using your concentration up. And you don't want to use it up on pleasure. You want to use it up on work. So I tend not to 
I tend not to read novels. For example, I love Thomas Harris, and I am stuck in this new book of his, you know, about the girl in Miami, the uh, the refugee uh, in Miami. I haven't read the I'm, new one, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. But I got to the scene where somebody's head blows up, and I'm thinking, okay, whose head blew up? Who put the bomb in the in the uh, in the cell phone? Who was the guy he was talking to? And what are these two guys? What is their relationship to the girl in Miami? And I could answer none of those questions. So that's when I put it down. Maybe I'll go back to it. But it's it's just been I've loved his books and have read them like you know a cool sip of water drinking it. But this one I'm having trouble. I don't mean to disparage him. He's a no, very no. fine writer, but I just am having trouble with this. Yeah, people will often ask me, you know, who my favorite writers are uh, to read, and a lot of times I'll just have to think through by by the genre that um, that I'm thinking of, if it's a thriller or a mystery or more literary and, and so on. But um, but I'll just well, have to admit, the, you know. Yeah, it's just, there's also the subconscious play of jealousy and envy and despair in these calculations you know it's like i mean there are many guys who are more successful than i am and in my secret 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 heart of hearts i wonder why and uh and yet uh, and when i read them i either get i just it just makes me angry so it's better not to read them and uh, you know, it, it just it it opens areas of vulnerability that need not be opened, and in whose in in whose hands the help. Uh, I'm sort of lost my sentence here, but it just opens areas. It opens peeves and grudges yeah. and angers, and it's not helpful to have those floating around in your mind. Yeah, no, that's that's a. Very honest and good way to look at it. And I, I think like every that, time I read you, Stephen, I think, oh. who the hell is this guy? How did he get so good? Damn oh, it, yeah, damn right. it, damn it. <laughs> um, that brings to mind one of your books that I haven't finished yet, I Ripper. And um, I in, I love your writing, of course, and but there are some parts that were so visceral and dark written from Jack the Ripper's perspective that – I was like, I, ha- I had a hard time to stomach some of those. Tell, tell me a little well, bit about I, that story. I'm or... glad to hear that because yeah. that is exactly my intention. Yeah. I decided that my original idea was to publish that book uh, uh, anonymously uh, or under a pseudonym, uh, nom de guerre, as it were. Uh, but then, you know, it's a commercial business, and my name, it seems, sells some books. And uh, I wanted to write an unvarnished true account of Jack the Ripper. If you do the work, the the homework, you realize that this guy was not an avuncular, saucy old British uncle. He was a savage, savage maniac. And I took all the descriptions from the actual crime reports of the of the of the crime scenes and the viscera and the in the also from the autopsies. Yeah. Uh, that book is highly accurate in its recreation of all the, the crimes. Um, I've there, there's a part of me that uh, admires and respects something that I call an outlaw work of art, and that is a work of art that does in fact 
offend a lot of people and does in fact violate the sort of compact between reader and writer that that very few writers are willing to uh breach but i decided to go ahead and do it yeah. and uh would see uh see if the market would bear it uh would see if the book would get a response and uh and just uh, it just and as you you also talked about the language for me it was a great great pleasure to write in my version of victorian english and i don't know why but i found it very easy and uh i found it very fluent and i just uh i just it just is a pleasure you know one of the things you want out of the books besides the paycheck and the sense of satisfaction is actual pleasure in writing them and i got a high got a very large dose of that out of writing those books and it was um i you know it was i, I understood that i was breaking out of the box and that sometimes that can pay off royally and sometimes it can destroy you but it was a chance i was willing to take and yeah. it seemed to do neither to be honest with you it was not it was by no means a large success it was a it was kind of a success i thought it might be what they call a uh in french a success to scandal that is its scandalous aspects made it successful but that didn't even really happen and it was sort of looked at as a disappointment in my career and uh it soured my relationship with Simon and Schuster I'd done six books with them uh it's probably time to move on regardless but uh their lack of enthusiasm enthusiasm was was manifest and uh so it it you know I'm glad I did it uh I even this will stun you I even have in mind another Jack the Ripper book yeah. because when I was writing that book I didn't know who Jack the Ripper was However, in the research for that book, I've come up with a really solid theory. Um and as you know that book, well, as you will find out, that book is a it it turns fanciful or uh, highly speculative at the end, but I would like to write a Jack the Ripper book, uh a novel but with everything exactly right and reveal in it whom I think was Jack the Ripper and why I think he is the only one of the suspects who could have been Jack the Ripper. So that's a big But I'll have teaser. to do that on my own dime. Yeah. You know, when I tried to sell it to the new publisher, they were not interested. Uh, so, I'll, you know, in other words, I'll have to just write that book and, you know, maybe place it, maybe not. We'll see. Well, that's fascinating. And I've, uh, that's actually kind of inspiring that, you know, you don't just look at the paycheck or whatever, but you're like, this book is creatively important for me to write, and I'm going to pursue it, and then, you know, see what happens. Um, I, 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 that's, I like that. It's nice. Well, it's, I appreciate uh, the affection. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to do in the corporate uh, reality of publishing. They, yeah. want, they want what they want, and they don't want anything else. And publishing, like newspapers and all forms of, media except the cursed internet have gotten smaller and more precise and more demographically aimed and they have a broader a deeper understanding of who their audience is and they're much more interested in appealing to that audience 
and they're not nearly the, the, the sort of the eccentric, the wild hair, the the you know they never published a book like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Man yeah. today, yeah. and yet that was a gigantic success. And I yeah. there's probably 50 other books that would not have gotten published today, except on the internet, but are are you know were huge successes when they were published. Um, and you just have to, you know, I'm old enough so that. I've got some latitude, and I don't take it too seriously anymore. And I'm uh, prosperous and comfortable, so I don't. It's no. It's not like if I write a book that nobody wants to publish, and I have to self-publish on the internet. It's not like my children won't get to go to college because both my kids are up have graduate degrees up to their necks, so they don't. You know, <laughs> I don't have to. I don't owe them anything anymore. So. Um, I can. I sort of have a freedom that no one else has, or that few people have, and I. I think I ought to take advantage of that. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so, would you call yourself a ripperologist, someone who's really? I was, I, I, but one yeah. of the, one of the ways my mind works is I get obsessed and I go into something in depth, and it occupies my total imagination for years and years, and then one day it's vanished. Hmm. It's just gone. It's like I've reached a moment where, again, the hard drive is filled. Yeah. And uh, I just uh, suddenly it's not nearly as fascinating today as it was yesterday. And that also that coincides with the publication of the book. I was also big on the Kennedy assassination. I did a book on that, and I became a uh, crackpot JFK guy for a while. And now I can, you know, it's 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 a it, the interest is still there, uh, but it's not. It's not. It's not the great uh, grinding uh, obsession of my life as it had been at one point. Now, are there any cliches? Um, we we talked a little bit about meeting the conventions that uh, the readers come to a genre for. They have certain expectations and so on. But are there any cliches that you've seen so often that you're like, Steve, it is just time to get rid of these once and for all. It's just now, are you talking specifically about guns or about... Oh, uh, no. I mean, just cliches about, uh, like, stories or uh, um, anything well, like that, you know. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll identify a cliche and then I'll try and reverse it. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, that said, I'll also copy. I steal from people all the time. I <laughs> uh, steal other plots. I steal gimmicks. I steal things. Uh, a lot of my, I steal things from movies and I just, you know, if it works, I'll use it. And I really don't care about the, uh, I really don't care about the, uh, I guess I don't care about the consequences. I've yet to be sued or charged with anything. I will not steal words. I'm too lazy to steal words because I would have to <laughs> copy the words. And I'm because I'm fast. I it's much easier for me to write something than to copy it. So I'll never copy. But and the other thing is that ideas sink into your mind, and one of the things that happens to them is your subconscious disguises them and represents them to you, and you think it's original. A case in point is a book I did called uh, "The Day Before Midnight." And I remember when that idea occurred to me, I was driving with my wife and two kids to the Dayton, Ohio for Christmas, and I was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And I remember exactly and specifically 
when that book entered my bloodstream. Bang! It just exploded. And I spent the rest of the day, the rest of the trip, plotting it and thinking of research I had to do. And I just couldn't wait to get started. I thought it was such a great uh, idea. I realized about four drafts later, after I'd sold it for more money than I thought existed on Earth, that it was basically the plot of Dr. Strangelove told from a different point of view. And at that point, I couldn't turn the locomotive around, so I just said, okay, uh, we'll just see what happens, and if the Kubrick estate sues me, so be it. Uh, and nobody in the Kubrick estate ever noted, and I joke about it all the time. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it's just, it's just good ideas are too good to be the unique property of one writer, even if he was the guy that thought it up. I mean, I without naming names, I am aware that there are several writers who look to me as I look to Stanley Kubrick, and steal from me, and th I don't care. That's fine. If it pays the bills, if it makes you happy, you know uh, that's good. I don't. It, it doesn't really matter. I don't, I've never come across a case of abject uh, plagiarism. Sure. And even if I did, I don't know what I'd do. Um, it's okay. It's everybody. You know, telling stories is a hard way to make a living, and and the more stories you tell, the, the it gets easier but it also gets harder so more power to anyone who can do it successfully well tell us a little more about your new book um game of snipers uh we want our the readers great to manhunt gymnastics my hero bob lee swagger uh through a intercession of a of a orphaned uh or a a war uh a war uh, ravaged uh mother who's lost her son through intercession, his, her intercession, he learns, and with the cooperation of Mossad, he learns that there is an extremely sophisticated and talented uh, jihadi sniper, a guy on his own level, who is preparing a long shot. And they learn then uh, from some computer records that this guy has come to America. So it's about... Uh, swagger and a small FBI team and one Israeli trying to locate this guy, trying to predict where he's going to do, but it also stays with him and we learn what makes him, how he, it creates him as a, I hope as a character and it's cat and mouse, except he's formid so formidable that it's cat and cat. As they, uh, nice. it's, swagger stalks him and he goes through, he's got a variety of of cultures that will sustain him, and he goes through them, and sometimes he's betrayed, and you 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 develop a grudging respect for him. He's an extremely competent human being, and as you might ad admit, again, as you say, it seems to be going one way. The trick is, at the last second, it goes another way, and uh, you get a uh, in-the-nick-of-time scenario with the two snipers shooting it out and trying to score the big hit and save the high-value target that is the uh, object of the plot in the first place. And uh, I, you know, I don't usually praise myself, but I will say objectively, it's gotten a very, very solid reception. Yeah, that's uh, I fantastic. Think it's a, I think it's a lot easier 
to read than the books of mine that are set in history because you don't really have to know much. Uh, you don't have to know who won World War II, for example, or you don't have to know that 1934 came after 1933. <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know, it just, uh, it goes like a bat out of hell. And that was, I see, I, see, I tend to write what I call deep books what I call deep books, maybe others don't, but I call them deep books. And then I write fast books, books with like Dirty White Boys, which are just about kinetic movement and dynamism and vivid characters, probably not as deep as you might want, but, but very vivid and uh, uh, big-scale clashes and gunfights and final... Uh, Italian Western style confrontations at the end, and I uh, and this is of that genre. Uh, this was this is my fast book, so I hope that uh, people enjoy. For those of you who enjoy fast, I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy this. That's fantastic! Yeah, it sounds like great fun, and I'll need to check it out. And we want all of our um, listeners to check it out as well. And um, before we close up, where's the best place for people to either check out your new books or maybe purchase the ones? I'm sure that's available everywhere. Is there a website you'd like to direct people to? I have a Facebook page. Okay. Well, there's two Facebook pages. There's a Facebook page I can, but mainly it's pictures of my beautiful new granddaughter. And oh, then there is a that's, – that's the Steve Hunter Facebook. But it seems like there's also a Stephen Hunter Facebook it's run out of New York, and I'm sure it's full of devilish information, but I, I have no idea. I don't really <laughs> – I haven't looked at it in months. I don't know what's up there now. I, I have not done a good job representing myself on the Internet. I mean, most of these guys really have slick people helping them put together slick sites, and I've just sort of bumbled and stumbled my way through it. So. Well, it seems like um, publishers more than ever these days want that, don't they? they want well, that's 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 you know. true too. Yeah. So if you see anything slick from me, it means that the publisher did it. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, joining me. So th thanks so much for joining me, Steve. And uh, I actually took some notes when you were talking, and I really liked some of the stuff you mentioned about like loaning your incredulity to someone, or people want drama, not behavior. Well, and thank you, so, Stephen. Yeah. I I appreciated the time to sound off. I think my voice is about to go to sleep anyway, yeah. so I'm glad yeah. we're done. Well, that sounds great. So uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in and listening. Um, my uh, information about my books is at stephenjames.net. Uh, for more information about other guests and to check out other broadcasts, please click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember... The story is the blender in which the plot occurs. Was that it? <laughs> That's close enough. We'll see you okay. next time. Bye-bye.